Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The day was May 8, 1945. For six long years, the world had been plunged in war and darkness. The Nazi war machine had rolled over Europe. Thousands and thousands of young men from many countries had perished in the battle. There was a dark cloud that hung over all of the Western world, and then war had broken out in the Pacific theater as well. And through all of these years of suffering and deprivation and blackouts at night and all of that, it seemed as if everything in the world was going in the wrong direction. And then suddenly, on May 8, 1945, word in many Western countries came out to keep the wires clear for an important announcement, an announcement that would change everything. And that announcement was a proclamation, a proclamation that came at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And President Truman in the United States took to the airwaves and proclaimed this. The Allied armies, through sacrifice and devotion and with God's help, have wrung from Germany a final and unconditional surrender. The Western world has been freed of the evil forces, which for five years and longer have imprisoned the bodies and broken the lives of millions upon millions of freeborn men. They have violated their churches, destroyed their homes, corrupted their children, and murdered their loved ones. Our armies of liberation have restored freedom to these suffering peoples whose spirit and will the oppressors could never enslave. And within minutes of this proclamation, all over the world, flags came out of windows and banners were waved, and people wept and rushed into the street and hugged and kissed each other and made parades arm in arm of tens of thousands of people in all of the major thoroughfares and squares of the world, celebrating the good news of this proclamation. And although it was not the final end of the war, it was the signal that the end of the war was in sight, and there was great, great rejoicing. Proclamation is something that we don't think about too much these days. We don't think about proclamations that change the course of history and change the course of the world. To proclaim, if you look it up in the dictionary, means to publicly and officially tell people about something of life-changing importance. And today in the gospel, we see Jesus' first proclamation. And I want us to look this morning at the context of that proclamation, the content of that proclamation, and the commission that comes from that proclamation for you and for me. So first, the context. We are still very early in Luke's gospel, the gospel that is full of the Holy Spirit working in these early chapters with the beautiful Christmas story and then Jesus' baptism. And you'll remember at Jesus' baptism, he is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And he comes back from that full of the power of the Spirit, and then today's gospel picks up. One of the things to note here is this is Jesus' first public teaching. And in the Jewish and Hebrew world, first things are ultra important. So Jesus comes, and he is teaching publicly for the first time, and he goes to the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus is following 
what is normal in Judaism to go in, and he is respected, and so he is invited to teach. So he comes in, and he is given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he picks out of that scroll one of the most important passages in all of the Hebrew scriptures, a messianic prophecy about that long-promised Messiah who would come and would free the people of Israel, and it would be a glorious day. So he picks that passage, and he begins to read it. And we switch now to the content of that message. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you can just feel the hearts of the people in the synagogue swelling with joy as they look forward to that day, because they are in a dark day, like those days of World War II. They are in a dark day. They are in a backwater province in Nazareth, Nazareth, that place where one of the disciples said, can anything good come from Nazareth, Galilee of the Gentiles, not a place that any leader had ever been from. And so Jesus is in this backwater place, but he's proclaiming this prophecy that something amazing will one day happen and God's people will be saved. And so as they are hearing this, they're surprised because Jesus stops mid-verse in the reading and he pauses and then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, i.e., I am the Messiah. I am the promised Son of God, promised from before all worlds to come and to bring salvation. And if you read on after today's lesson, it doesn't work out so well in the first moments because they don't believe him. They think, who is this guy? We knew him growing up. How can he be the promised one of God? But the remarkable thing here is that this radical claim that Jesus makes is the greatest proclamation that has ever been made in the history of the world, a proclamation that changes everything. Jesus comes and he says, this is not just good news, but it is life-changing, earth-shattering news that changes everything. And part of it is when we read this, we sometimes misunderstand and think it is only a message of social justice. And there is a component of that, but that is not the main point. The words that Jesus uses here are much bigger than we think they are. When he says that he's coming to proclaim good news to the poor, that word doesn't just mean those who are materially poor. It means those who are poor in spirit, those who have nothing, those who are without hope in this world. In the world we live in today, there are plenty of people without hope. Despair is rampant in our culture. And Jesus says, I am proclaiming good news to the poor. He says, I'm coming to proclaim liberty to the captives. And this word captive does not just mean people who are in jail, although there were plenty of those in the Roman era. Jesus is saying anyone who is held captive in any way, literal or figurative, oppressed and captive, by sin or addiction, whatever it might be, that he has come to proclaim liberty. He has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
And again, it's not just those who are in jail or being discriminated against, but those who are oppressed by things that have gone wrong in their life, by those who are experiencing despair. Remember in John 10, Jesus says, Satan, the thief, comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And that is the oppression that Jesus is saying he wants to free his people and free us, you and me, today from. And he's coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that God is not up there wanting to smite people, but he's wanting to invite people to come to him as he stretches out his arms on the cross to welcome people into the reach of his saving embrace. The great English bishop J.C. Ryle puts it this way, We may well believe there was a deep meaning in our Lord's selection of this special passage of Isaiah. He desired to impress on his Jewish hearers the true character of the Messiah, whom he knew all Israel were then expecting. He well knew they were looking for a mere temporal king who would deliver them from Roman dominion and make them once more first among the nations. Such expectations, he would have them understand, were premature and wrong. The Messiah's kingdom at his first coming was to be a spiritual kingdom over hearts. His victories were not over worldly enemies, but over sin. His redemption was not to be from the power of Rome, but from the power of the devil and the world. It was in this way and in no other way that they must expect to see the words of Isaiah fulfilled. People were looking for the wrong thing. They were looking for release from the Romans. They were looking for a leader that would come and make Israel the world power again. It is as if we today sometimes think salvation may be coming on Air Force One. But that is not what Jesus is about. He is about a different kind of kingdom. And make no mistake, if things were bad in Judea, the Romans were an oppressive group, and the Herods, who were the local rulers, compete with the Borgias for the most awful ruling dynasty in the history of the world. So it was bad, but that was not what Jesus was about. Jesus was coming to do something much more important. One Anglican clergyman put it this way, everything has changed with Jesus's proclamation. We are delivered to a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. The fulfillment of these prophecies is not so much in what Jesus would do or how busy he would make himself accomplishing them. The fulfillment was to be in his very self. Jesus is the good news of God's love and forgiveness to those who have nothing. The poor in spirit, the powerless, the homeless. Jesus is release to the captives, those who are burdened by the things that prevent them from discovering God's presence as much as those who are burdened by sickness or disadvantage or any other type of discrimination. Jesus is recovery of sight for those who cannot find God, who are blind to him, as much as he is a source of healing for broken bodies. Jesus frees the oppressed. Jesus has come to declare and to proclaim that there is a radical new kingdom that has invaded the world through him, a kingdom that doesn't rely on earthly means, but relies on different means to bring people into a place of joy and to be reconciled to God, to be set free from sin and made to be who God wanted them to be in the first place. And the important thing with this passage is not to miss the main point 
that Jesus says he is the Messiah. He is not just making a nice teaching or a good Sunday school lesson. As C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity, Jesus came, and he came for a particular reason. And Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is the very Son of God, the one promised from the beginning of the world. And when you look at what Jesus says in this passage, you may think, but how did this happen? Because after Jesus' ministry, after he's gone to the cross and been resurrected, there's still poor people. There's still people who are blind. There's still people who are in jail, and the Roman Empire is still in power. So what did Jesus mean? But the important thing is to understand that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It makes a difference in this world, but it's not of this world. Which brings us to the commission part. At the end of the same chapter 4, Luke says this, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As we heard in the epistle today, we are Christ's body. And so Jesus' ministry was a ministry of proclaiming in addition to healing and the sick, all of those things. But proclaiming was his chief goal, and so it must be our chief goal as well. One of the remarkable things is that if you look in the Gospels, you do not see Jesus ever challenging government authority, trying to overthrow the oppressive structures of Rome. But what you see him doing is walking each day and wherever God puts people in his path, sharing the good news, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to those people. And the result of that is that in several generations, this ragtag band of a few hundred followers in a backwater province of the Roman Empire, without power, without money, without anything except proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, turned the world upside down. The Christian faith spread all over the Western world and into the Eastern world, and eventually even the Roman emperor became a Christian. It is one of the most shocking things in the history of the world, and it shows the power of the gospel, not using worldly means, but proclaiming the good news. So the question for us is how do we proclaim the good news? How do we turn from just thinking that this is good news for me and share it with people who are all around us, the people that God puts in our path? And I would suggest to you that one way to do that 
is to follow Jesus' example. Look at what Jesus did in this passage. He was in the synagogue on Sunday. He was surrounded by God's people. He was deeply invested in God's word. And then he was calling people to follow him. And we can do that same thing. We can be invested in God's people and God's word and go about proclaiming. And if you are like me and like so many, sometimes you are hesitant to do that. It might be embarrassing. It might be difficult. You might not have a theology degree and you might be afraid someone will ask you a hard question. But I would suggest to you that the Holy Spirit is more powerful than our weakness and we can take a great lesson from the wonderful hymn writer, William Fullerton. William Fullerton was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland in the 19th century, and at 17 years old came to Christ through the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. He did an amazing amount of ministry over his adult life as an evangelist, leading many, many people to Christ. But Fullerton, when he was 72 years old, wrote a hymn, a hymn of great humility, called I Cannot Tell, and it's in the communion music today, so I would invite you to turn and look at some of the words for that. But what he says in that great hymn is, I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men. I cannot tell how silently he suffered as with his peace he graced his place of tears. I cannot tell how he will win the nations. I cannot tell how all the lands will one day worship. But what I love about this hymn is the refrain in each verse is, but this I know. There are some things that he does know. I know he was born of Mary when Bethlehem's manger was his only home. I know he heals the brokenhearted. I know all flesh shall seek his glory. I know the skies will thrill with gladness on that great glad day when he returns in glory. My friends, we are not called to talk about what we can't tell or what we don't know, but to testify and proclaim what we do know, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the only place where there is life. He is the only place where there is abundant life. You may be the only gospel that is in the life of the person that you encounter as you walk through your day. Let us pray that we may be found faithful proclaimers. Amen.